The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. So this morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, And God has made, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very minute, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had sent, seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Jennifer. So the, uh, the title of today's sermon is Why uh, Legalism is Poison. Legalism is Poison. Uh, but I'd like to start with a little anecdote from a very insightful, spiritually rich uh, TV program, cartoon called The Simpsons. And on The, Simps- on the Simpsons, uh, a family is driving to church, or, or past a church, and there's a sign, there's a church sign in the middle of the church lawn, and it says, this is a private church, please worship elsewhere. Now, sometimes humor is one of the best ways to name actual realities. We see a sign like that on a cartoon, and, and we laugh, but if anybody has spent any time in the New Testament, if anybody has spent any time in contemporary Western culture, you understand that exclusion and prejudice are part of the air we breathe. There are all kinds of isms that we give ourselves to maybe without even realizing it. Some of those might include nationalism, 
racism, classism, ageism, doctrinalism, partisanism. There's all kinds of, of isms that, that on some level and, you know, either in explicit ways or in subtle ways aim to separate the world between us and them, between the good people and the bad people. And, of course, we're on the side of the good people and whoever they are are on the side of the bad people. But wherever cultures and climates and communities are shaped by the gospel, instead of having a polarizing effect, it has a uniting effect. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that because the dividing walls and dividing lines of hostility between God, a holy God, and sinful people have been brought down through the finished work of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because those divided, dividing walls have been brought down, that this God who lives in unapproachable light, the Scriptures say. This God who can't even look on sin has made a way for us not only to be tolerated by Him or accepted by Him or, or befriended by Him, but to become His daughters and sons. Because that dividing wall has been torn down, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, the dividing walls of hostility between people under Christ also must be torn down. In other words, what Paul's talking about is the uniting of otherwise hostile, mutually hostile, polarized groups where enemies become friends and friends become brothers and sisters under Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, right? Remember when when Saul of Tarsus was ravaging the church and then, then he, he miraculously became a Christian when, when, when the, the risen Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And he goes to a man named Ananias and Ananias greets him as brother Saul. This man who only recently was, was exterminating uh, his fellow Christians suddenly becomes a Christian and now Ananias who once feared Saul of Tarsus now refers to him as a brother because of Christ. And here in today's passage, we see Peter, a colleague of now the Apostle Paul, once Saul of Tarsus, Peter is given a message to, as a Jewish man, uh, embrace a Gentile man into the family of God, a Jew embracing a Greek man into the family of God, and it's a man named Cornelius. And so what we'll do is we'll look at this episode and talk about it under two points. The first is, what is prejudice? And the second is, how is prejudice dismantled? So, so first of all, what is prejudice? It's, it's this. Prejudice is social poison. Social poison. It is a form of legalism that divides people through virtue signaling. Prejudice is a social poison and a form of legalism that divides people from people through virtue signaling. You know what virtue signaling is? It's, it's the use of words to signal what side you're on. And we see this in the 
uh, 18th chapter of Luke where Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee exhibits two attributes which indicate that this social poison has infected him. This legalism that divides has infected him. Prejudice, marked by two things. One, superiority. He says this, thank you, my God, that I am not like other people. Superiority. It's like that movie Dodgeball, didn't win any Oscars. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Ben Stiller, it's one of those slapstick comedies, but you know, Ben Stiller is this uh, you know, head of this, this gym called Globo Gym, where, where bodybuilders go, and, and the advertising pitch is, we're better than you and you know it. Or I'm sorry, we're better than you and we know it. That's essentially what this Pharisee is saying with respect to the tax collector and all sorts of other people. Thank you that I'm not like other people, he says. But he goes on and expresses his contempt towards specific people groups that he's talking about. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. So Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale University. He is of Croatian descent, and he is very familiar with this whole us-against-them vibe because Miroslav Volf grew up in Croatia as a child of war. And in his, uh, his seminal work called Exclusion and Embrace, he says these words about forgiveness. And he writes as a Christian. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. That's what's going on in this passage. If you look at verse 2, it says that Peter is being criticized by a group called the circumcision party. That word party is an important word that I'll get to in a second. But why is Peter being criticized? Because Peter, as a Jewish man, is suddenly welcoming into his faith community Gentiles, even Roman soldiers like Cornelius, as Christian brothers and as Christian sisters without requiring them or other Gentile converts to Christianity to become culturally Jewish at all. You see, up to this point, it had been, you know, if if you can become, if you're not one of us, you can become one of us by becoming like us in every way. That, that just doesn't just apply to, to the God that we serve and to, to our essential core doctrinal beliefs. You also have to become culturally like us. See, this, this word circumcision in, in this context refers to an entire way of life. There were a set of norms and expectations that even Peter had given himself to and devoted himself to to, to, to become separate and different and superior to the rest of the world. They would keep certain holidays in a unique way. They would follow a certain diet, wear a certain wardrobe, and vote certain politics. If you don't get in line with all of these things, you, you can't be part of us. See, there's an usness to prejudice. There's an usness to to social poison that, that, that keeps 
others at arm's length. They had a whole set of laws that, that, that defined their usness. Uh, they, they called them the clean laws, and they were represented in a book called the Mishnah, 616 extra-biblical laws. That's, that's more rules piled on top of the, the, the rules and the laws and commands that are already in Scripture, which are given for our good. But Peter and, 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 and his community, the way that they thought about the world, they, the way that they thought about life and religion, etc., led to the development of an added book, of an additional book created by men, not inspired by God. One of the laws, here, here's, how, here's how extreme that the laws would get sometimes. If you spit on the Sabbath, you would be considered a Sabbath breaker because hypothetically your saliva might go into the ground and make contact with a seed and germinate the seed, and the seed would become a plant, and that would constitute work on the Sabbath. It was that ridiculous at certain points. But this was one of the ways that Peter and his people, before he became Peter the Apostle, and the circumcision party kept themselves above and beyond everybody else and, and kept themselves at a distance from everybody else. It's by the rules and the culture that they followed. We're better than you and we know it. Now, the Apostle Paul, who was also part of this community for a long time, but then also, like Peter, became a convert to Christianity and put his faith in Christ, later on as an apostle of the gospel and a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would, would, would spend a whole chapter almost in the book of Romans, first chapter, talking about, you know, this long list of, of, of Gentile or Greek-specific sins that were happening in Roman society. And you think, well, wait, is, is Paul now getting all Pharisee on them again? Is he, is he getting all us against them? Is he getting all superior and contemptuous, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18? Or is there something else going on? Well, if you go to Romans chapter 3, just two chapters later, Paul says, after this long list of Greek-specific sins, Paul says, as a Jewish man, are we any better? Absolutely not, he says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, non-gospel relating, circumcision party, the party spirit way of relating to people always divides. The gospel way of relating to people always unites and brings together. What Paul is saying here is, no, we're not any better. In fact, we're all on the same wavelength, but we're not all up here. We're all down here. We're all low. We're all on the ground at the feet of Christ, completely dependent on Christ to forgive us and to mend us and to heal us and to renew us in ways that no level of behavior and no list of laws will ever be able to accomplish for us. The burden's off for those who acknowledge that all the fitness that he requires is that we feel our need of him. So that's what prejudice is. So how is it dismantled? You know, for all of his life, Peter himself had been steeped in this circumcision party mindset, this usness, this better than thouness. Peter had been steeped in it, and he's breaking free by the grace of God from that mindset through episodes like this. 
But Peter had been so immersed in that circumcision party way of life that God had no choice but to beat him over the head repeatedly with this message that, that, that the gospel is, is a pathway to inclusion, not exclusion. A pathway to embrace, not rejection of those who are different than you are, Peter, namely of the Gentiles. By the way, I'm, I'm a Gentile. Most of you listening to this message are Gentiles. We're, we're all in the bucket that Cornelius would have been in in this episode. What does God give to Peter? He gives him two things. He gives him vision, and he gives him, gives him voices, other voices. First, vision. Verse 4, we see that Peter is praying to God in Joppa, and as he's praying, a, a vision is given to him by God of a great sheet, it says. And on that sheet are reptiles, beasts, and birds. These are all animals that the circumcision party forbade its adherents from eating. They had very specific dietary rules. And the voice says to Peter from heaven, kill Peter and eat. Enjoy yourself. Feast on it. And Peter reacted. He says, by no means, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And it says that the voice of God then answered him, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, this, this conversation, it says, had to happen three times. Same conversation, three times before Peter finally got it. Peter, like you and me, was slow to learn, and so he needed some repetition to get the message through and to drive the message home, that God relates to people on the basis of grace and mercy, not on the basis of national identity, ethnic identity, generational identity, class identity, doctrinal identity, political identity. That is, those, are not, those have nothing to do with the welcome of God. God receives all whose identity has been wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and what Jesus Christ has done. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He died a sinner's death to take care of the penalty for our sin, bore our burdens for all of our sorrows, and rose from the dead, promising a future that is completely free from sin and sorrow when we are risen with him. That's where your identity is as a Christian, Peter. That's where your identity is as a Christian, anyone who's listening, who's put your faith in Jesus Christ and not in any of these other identities. All of these other identities become secondary. I am more Christian now than I am a Saul's. I'm more of a, a, a member of the family of God than I am a member of the Saul's family. That's how that's how tethered to Jesus Christ I am. Whatever family God has given me here on earth will give way ultimately to the family of God. And hopefully all the people in my family here on earth will, will be swept up along with me into the family of God. But your first, the moment you become a Christian, every other identity of yours becomes secondary, tertiary, and beyond. 
It really becomes the end of identity politics as well inside the body of Christ. For in Christ there is no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the identity statement. That's from Galatians, another letter from Paul. The point here to Peter and to us is do not set limits where God doesn't. Do not impose limits on yourself or on others where God does not. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was in my early 20s, first church I ever, ever became a member of, and they had this talent show. It was this fun thing. Maybe Jennifer can bring a talent show to Christ Pres Old Hickory Boulevard, and we can have some fun together and share our talents. Well, my talent was that I can, I, I can possibly better than anybody that I know imitate a cat choking up a hairball. I'm really good at imitating a, a, a cat choking up a hairball. I'm going to spare you of that right now. Sorry, kids. I know you're eager to see me doing that. Catch me at church next week, kids, and I will imitate for you a cat choking up a hairball uh, when we connect again together in person. But I remember the whole room was roaring with laughter after I did my imitation of the cat. And I remember walking away feeling a little bit guilty that at a church event, something I did caused so much laughter. And I was over there, I was sitting in a corner by myself, and this older woman in the church came up to me. Her name was Eva, and she says, you know, what's, what's wrong, Scott? And I, I said, I don't know. Should I, is it appropriate to laugh that hard and that much and to make people laugh that hard and laugh that much in church? Isn't this a place where we're supposed to be really serious and reverent and respectful? And, and, and she went on to explain to me, and this is a woman who'd been a Christian for well over 50 years at this point in time. She says, part of being reverent and respectful is laughing because God is a God of laughter. God is a God of joy and abundance. And then she proceeded to ask me what was going on, and, I, and we got to the bottom of it. Before I'd become a Christian, I chased laughter in unhealthy ways in order to medicate my own pain. Did you know that a lot of comedians would say that the reason why they got into comedy was that they live in pain and that comedy is an outlet. Humor is an outlet to help release the pain. And so the way that I had released my pain was by chasing laughter through excessive use of alcohol, the use of cutting sarcasm and crude jokes. And that was before I became a Christian. And so I'd, I'd come to associate all laughter with something dirty. And what I needed was a vision of, of the healthy use of laughter, of, of the healthy use of a good thing that God has given for our enjoyment. Same thing happened to St. Augustine. St. Augustine, many of you will know if you've read his confessions, St. Augustine was uh, very promiscuous before he became a Christian. And then, you know, sometime after he became a Christian, he, he spent a, a pretty good season of his life believing and even teaching that marital intimacy is dirty except for procreation, which is not a biblical teaching. It's not a biblical teaching. And yet, we, we can swing the pendulum so far out of, out of out of the guilt we feel or the guilt we don't feel that maybe we should. 
We can, we can swing a pendulum so far that, that, that we allow our hearts to be formed by culture, by past experience, by feelings of guilt or feelings of no guilt, all of which are prone to error. And so what, what are we told here? We need a vision for what God says. We need to hear the voice of God. And it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we need to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And, and so when we say be fully present with Jesus every day by being fully in the Scriptures every day, this, that's what this is about. It's about aligning the way that we think about everything with the truth that God has given, and not to add laws to it or subtract things from it either. So, God gave Peter a vision. He also gave him some other voices. You know, there's this, this message that he gets. There's this sheet that, that, that he sees, you know, from the angel of the Lord, and that's phase one, right? This vision that we've already talked about, that's God communicating to Peter, you now have a dietary freedom that you didn't think that you had, but you do. Don't call unclean what God has called clean. But he says, the, 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 this, this image that I've shown you that gives you dietary freedom points to an even bigger thing, phase two, Peter, social freedom. The freedom to welcome into your community and to be welcomed into community with people that you used to think were your enemy. See, because Christ didn't just come to love his friends. He didn't just come to love people who were like him. He came to love his enemies. He came to demonstrate his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile toward him, while we were still opposed to him, that's when Christ died for us. The same Christ who from the Middle East in the first century, living in, you know, this, 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 this peasant prophet, this poor man who was homeless the good part of his adult life, basically who had nothing in common with people like me. He had dark skin, Middle Eastern Jew, didn't speak English wasn't a Greek, wasn't a Gentile, wasn't anything that I am except human. It's that Jesus who says to his disciples, I want you to go in Jerusalem, our hometown, Judea, the outskirts, Samaria, our enemies nearby, and the ends of the earth. Well, Jesus was talking about people like me when he talked about the ends of the earth. And if his heart would reach to the ends of the earth to include the likes of me who are nothing like him except in our shared humanity, what would stop me as Peter from reaching across the aisle or across the river or across the highway to Cornelius? Just as we mustn't erase certain foods that God has called clean, we also must not erase people that God has called clean. What does God do to illustrate the point? I mean, he, he just goes straight forward at the very beginning. God is not subtle. He sends three Gentile men to Peter. And the message is this. God told Cornelius, our Gentile friend, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Then Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as the Holy Spirit had fallen on us Jewish people at the beginning. 
And what, what Peter's doing here is he's referring back to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jewish men and women from different nations who speak different languages. And now the same thing is happening with Gentiles, with Greeks. They're receiving the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jewish community did in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, as a fulfillment of something God spoke about at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 17 when he tells Abraham, you're going to be the father of every nation. Every nation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so, so the message that Peter brings to Cornelius' household is the message that will save the Gentiles from their sin, but it is also the message out of Peter's own mouth that will save Peter from the party spirit that keeps him at a distance, that keeps him at arm's length from those who are his brothers and sisters. You see this big sheet with all the animals on it that God showed to Peter? It's actually a metaphor for the church. And so Peter continues in verse 16, I remember the word of the Lord. If God then gave to the Gentiles as he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a pretty good posture right there. They all glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance leading to life. It is so important to recognize you all. It is so important to recognize that the way God got to Peter was to send him three men who weren't Christians yet. There's a message in there. Don't ever think as a Christian that you are beyond learning something significant, even learning from God through the mouth and message that comes to you through somebody who doesn't even share your faith. Sometimes God will send a non-Christian or two, to help Christians align better with Christ. I want to repeat that. Sometimes God will send a non-Christian or two to help Christians align better with Christ. The image of God is in everybody. The law of God, as Romans tells us, is written on every human heart. I came across this article, it was written several years ago, written to Christians. And the title of this article, you can find it in the Huffington Post, you can Google it. The title is, Six Tips for Christians on Talking to Non-Christians. And it's written, interestingly, by a man who at the time, his name is Chris Stedman, at the time he was a chaplain at Harvard and an atheist who identifies as queer. And in this article, he articulates six points that could be preached from any reasonable Christian pulpit. Number one, when you're, as a Christian, in conversation with non-Christians, drop the stereotypes. Apply the golden rule. Treat other people in the way that you would like to be treated yourself. Number two, don't try to win an argument. Try instead to understand the person you are talking to. Cultivate, nurture, empathy. Don't label, don't caricature. Ask the why question. Why is faith difficult for you? Maybe they have some church hurt. Maybe they grew up in a family of origin that had all kinds of Christian hypocrisy in and around it. 
You know, people come to us with an entire life story that they carry with them. And so, you know, Chris Stedman is saying, hey, Christians, if you want to reach atheists like me, don't try to win an argument with me because I'm not listening if that's your goal. But if you try to understand me and you try to love me and that's your starting point, I'm all in. I'm listening. Number three, he says, speak only for yourself. Behave like you are one human being interacting with another human being. And like the woman uh, at the well in, in Samaria, just tell your story. Just tell your story. Put the agendas aside, put the conversion agendas aside, and just tell your story. Tell, tell the other person why Christ is meaningful to you, how Christ has made a difference in your life, and let your life do the talking. Number four, highlight that there actually is diversity among Christians. Show us this. Tell us this. Dispel the narratives that are out there that all Christians are like this, right? Because it's always the drunk uncles that get the microphone, right? It's always, you know, those that, 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 that are considered by many to be an embarrassment that get, you know, captured in the news stories, right? Okay, so if you say that's the case, then show us. Demonstrate it. Demonstrate that this actually is a community for every kind of person. Next, acknowledge Christian advantage. You know, it is the majority religion in a pluralistic society, which makes it a little bit difficult for uh, a person who is not on board to be lectured to, just because of the majority dynamics there. Come in humility, and if you really believe what, you believe what you say you believe, then you won't feel like you have to go on attack in order to win an argument. You'll have enough confidence in who Christ is and what you believe about Christ not to panic about what the response is going to be in conversation. And then finally, talk and listen to people about more than just their salvation status. In other words, see people as whole people. Stedman writes this, what if Christian evangelism, again, remember, this is coming from an atheist. What if Christian evangelism were a mutually enriching dialogue in which the promises of the church, that is, the promises of Christ, are put forward as proposals, as encounters, not as edicts in conversations between Christians and those who are not Christian? So that's it's pretty helpful if you ask me. You can, again, you can Google that. Six tips for Christians talking to non-Christians. By the way, this works. Kids uh, who want your parents or your family members or, or your siblings to know Christ who don't, this is really good advice. It's, a, it's an article worth reading. Or parents who really want to reach your kids with the message of Christ and, and you feel frustrated, and you feel scared. This is a great article to start with. Six tips for Christians on talking to non-Christians. Okay, finally, Peter is also surrounded by fellow Christians who will help drive this whole experience home to him so he doesn't fall back into his former circumcision party ways. It says that Peter brought six brothers with him. So here is how we've defined membership in a local church. This is why we believe in membership. This, this is what it is. Right? Like, like, a, like a little spark, it's just going to flame out. But you put a thousand sparks together, it's going to become a fire. Right? You, know, you take a coal in, in a pile of, 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 of hot coals and you isolate it, it's going to flame out and turn to ashes really quick. But if you keep it with the, the coals, it's going to burn, burn, burn. 
It's going to be what it's meant to be, what every coal is meant to be. Membership in a local church works that way too. Membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus journeys toward a better future together. Journeys toward a better future together. And the more diverse, the better. Now, there are all kinds of diversity that we could think about. Uh, There's ethnic diversity. That's probably what we think about first and foremost when we think about diversity. But there's also, in addition to that, generational diversity, which our church has in droves in all of its congregations. Economic diversity, which exists all over our church. Political diversity exists significantly in our church. Now, Christina Cleveland from Duke actually put it this way, and she writes as a Christian. She says, the best way to discover our own blind spots is to get into community with fellow Christians from the opposite political perspective. In a time like now, that's a scary invitation probably to some, but it's also a pretty good indicator. It's going to be a pretty good indicator of where we actually are on this stuff when we get into community with people that we disagree with on things that matter significantly to us. So we are foregoing the Lord's Supper today for obvious reasons. We're not together. But I hope that that all of this talk about community and about love across the lines of difference and, and Peter and Cornelius the Gentile sending for Peter uh, the, the, the Jewish man, depending on whatever message it is that, that Peter's going to bring him, putting himself in a place of humility, this powerful Roman soldier putting himself in a, in a humble place before the Jewish messenger Peter who brings the gospel to him, and Peter who obeys the voice of the Lord to say, look, you, you're never in a place where you can call unclean what I've called clean and who I've called clean. And, and you know, this is something that, that, that we're all called and invited to embrace, whatever it looks like in our life as a community together. And so next Sunday, we're going to surround the Lord's table again, where he welcomes um, even Cousin Eddie, you know, even, even, the, even the relatives that we don't get, that we don't understand. I hope that, that this message and this, this picture that God gave first to Peter and now to us makes you that much more hungry to come around these tables together with your brothers and sisters next week.